Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I'm here today for an incredibly, well, I hope what will be an incredibly fun conversation about Hilary Mantel, and especially her most recent book, The Mirror and the Light, which is the third book in her massive trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. And the people I have here are two very special authors who have differing points of view about this book. One of them is Anne Easter Smith, who is the author of six books that take place before the time of the Tudors. In it, she's a Ricardian. Richard III was the subject of her most recent book called This, this Son, Son of York. York. <laughs> I also have Pat Bracewell here, who is the author of books that take place even further back with the Anglo-Saxons and Emma of Normandy. And her new book, The Steel Beneath the Silk, will be coming out on March 2nd. And I am deeply engrossed in reading that book now. It's absolutely fabulous, as are Anne's. And they're both English history people, whereas I am not. (laughs) So I am pretty much going to let them talk more than I will in this discussion about Hilary Mantel, who it seems to me from my sort of my little informal poll, people seem to either love her or really hate her. So... I have one of each here. First of all, let's start on the positive side. So Pat, talk to me a little bit about what appeals to you about Hilary Mantel in general and the mirror and the light in specific. I think, first of all, I think Mantel is a brilliant writer. Her language is marvelous. And in this book, and it's been quite some time since I've read the earlier books, but in this book, I really found that I was totally captivated by it. This is not Tudor England. This is Cromwell's England. And she manages to immerse us in that world. It's almost like we sink into the story where we get the words and the thoughts, the observations, the dialogue and the people, and they cling to you like you've been dipped in a vat of peanut butter. You're really in the middle of everything. And I'm astonished at the things that she does to make this happen. All right, we'll start there. And then we'll, I'll give Anne a chance to have her moment. I know this is going to be very hard for me because I know both of you are Mantel aficionados, but as a matter of fact, I could not get into Wolf Hall. I tried twice. I got to 50 pages and I just gave up. So I never wrote, read that one and I never read Bring Up the Bodies. And then when this one came out, I thought, why would I read the trilogy, the third in the trilogy, until Suzanne and Pat persuaded me to come in with them on this podcast. So I have spent the last six weeks reading this tome, and I I, I have not as nice things to say about Mantel's writing as they do. Yes, she's very, her metaphors are stunning and she definitely is a a wordsmith. But to be honest with you, I find her writing self-conscious and precious. So there we are, sorry. That's okay. 
this is why I'm doing this. I'm really interested in both sides of this coin. And I'm, as you said, I'm more on Pat's side. It's really, it's always good to try and articulate what you like or don't like about a book, because I think it's instructive for other people as well. I'd love to talk about the very beginning of the book, because that to me, it's funny because I went back to it to prepare for this because I read it and it's 750 pages, <laughs> but I loved it because it totally carried me through the whole thing. But I went back and looked at the beginning and I think it's astonishing what she does in that first scene. Pat, do you have anything to add about that? I, or? I was thinking about that just this morning because I feel like in this book, okay, in the first two books, we see Thomas Cromwell is the central figure. And she throws a positive light on Cromwell. This is not the Cromwell that we saw from the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Remember that we've all seen a million years ago. This is the Cromwell of uh, Mark Rylance in those early books. He was handsome and good looking. And he was the central figure and sort of a heroic figure. In this book, she really throws a lot of shade on Thomas Cromwell. And she starts with the very first sentence, which I'm going to read. Once the queen's head is severed, he walks away. A sharp pang of appetite reminds him that it is time for a second breakfast or perhaps an early dinner. Now, how can you love a man when you're in his head like that? She really brings us bang, right? This is not going to be the Cromwell that I was showing you before. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I agree. And from that moment, I come to this book from my English history classes and um, a huge fan of Robert Bolt, Bolt's or Man of All Seasons. And I, we were taught, just like Richard III, we were taught he was a bad king. And I have since found out he wasn't <laughs> a bad king. But I think that all through the book, there were moments of uh, humor, which I loved his humor, but for the most part, he never changed from me my impression of a manipulative, ambitious, and rather cruel guy. So I don't didn't see all of the other parts of him from the other two books. So this is what I think makes this discussion interesting, is the fact that you've come at it from two other books where he was all sweetness and light, and now she's got to who really Thomas Cromwell was. And that's hasn't changed my opinion of him at all, this book. Interesting you should say that, because I mean, he was presented in a more positive light in the first two books, but his quality as ambitious, as very pragmatic, was definitely there. But what she did was humanize him, I think, in showing us his relationship with his wife and, the, and that whole sort of the thing with the painter who's Holbein and people oh like that. And and the family life, his life at uh, his house, whose name I forget right now, something Friars, Friars. Austin Friars, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and so you're right, I came to this book with a feeling of this is a complicated person. But he's basically got his head on straight and his heart in the right place. But as you point out, that is not the Thomas Cromwell we see at the beginning of this book. On the other hand, what I think she does brilliantly throughout, is pull us back from that and back into his past as a way of not explaining exactly or excusing, but Richard. helping us. Yeah. 
Yeah, helping us understand where he's coming from, how he got to this point. And that was something that wasn't so much in the other books, I don't think, although it was a while since I read them, so I'm maybe not remembering. But I just found that took me right into a different place. I still remember the scene of him hiding under the scaffold. And there are relationships in this book. There are times when he tries to help people. He gets Wyatt out of prison. He works at that. And there are even people like, who is it, Woolsey's daughter. He cares about her. He wants to help her. And she hates him because she has heard something about him that isn't true, but he can't convince her otherwise. His relationship with Catherine of Aragon, even though she's gone now, he thinks back to things that happened. And his relationship with Mary, where he's trying to help her, keep her from getting, <laughs> from her father killing her. But I don't see the ambition so much in this as I see it's like he's, we see him, he's pontificating, he's both dramatist and player. He's like moving pieces on the chessboard, but always to protect his king. That's rule number one for him. Yeah. But also by protecting his king, he's protecting himself. So that's exactly what, that's how I felt that he was, he would go which way would, was going to protect himself as, as well as his his immediate entourage, Rafe and his and Gregory, but uh, I somehow never felt that he was. He thought of Henry as anything but his this um, all powerful and huge presence. But I think I always got the feeling he believes that he was smarter than Henry, and and he would hide that sometimes because Henry was all powerful. He he knew he he. he be put down if Henry wasn't happy with him. But my, I'm not saying he was in this book, he doesn't come across as terribly ambitious. That's how I went into this book thinking of Thomas Cromwell. And his ambitions have played out and he's got where the only place he can be, mm -hmm. which is Henry's right-hand man. He can't be Henry. So this is as high as he's ever going to get. And, but then how he still can manipulate things. And I, I, I loathe the fact that he was able to uh, amass all of his land and this and just give gifts away. And he didn't, I don't think he looked after where he came from, the people he come from. He didn't help the poor or anything like that. He was just very much keeping his allies. And if I have to bribe this person or give this person a position, that's the kind of manipulation that I, I didn't want to him. I'm sorry, I didn't. I, his sense of humor, yes, but that, that his actions, I didn't. It's interesting you say that about him ignoring the people from his past, because I, you're right, I, I don't remember him being magnanimous toward them. However, there's very much a sense all the way through that he hasn't in any way forgotten where he came from. And there's always going back to that whole sort of metaphor, the thing about him and steel and, and iron and the blacksmithing and all of that kind of thing. It's it just, which I think is part of what makes him such a complex character. I, I agree. I think people who have had a childhood like that, and I was gathering from little bits of flashback, of course, you knew more than I did. And sometimes I didn't know I was in a flashback and I'm thinking, who's this? And it was hard for me because I didn't recognize the names. I mean, I do the same thing in my Richard book. And I think Mantel that's exactly what she needed to do through the three books. And 
I did it. I had to do it in one book because I didn't have the luxury of publishing saying 700 pages is fine for me. But I think what I tried to do with Richard was show the child and where he came from that maybe made some people think that he became this dark man at the end, which he did have a dark side to him. And, and, but I felt I couldn't leave out that childhood to see him as he had to make his way through being the youngest kid in, in this family and Edward becomes king and all of that. So I, I get that with why Mantel did all of that with the childhood. And I'm sorry I didn't read the other books, but there we are. That's quite all right. Pat, you were going to say. No one lets him forget his past. They're constantly throwing it up in his face that he's a commoner. And there's this terrible fear that he's that he's going to marry Mary. And so he's got enemies against him all the time. You're talking about him protecting himself. And yeah, he's trying to protect himself by aligning himself with the king because it's only the king that can give him the protection that he needs. But there's always the foreshadowing of what's going to happen. It's there in every chapter. You get this foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Henry and what what has happened with others with Henry and it's just very chilling to read those to read those passages let's talk a little bit i one of the things i love to dig into and i think pat you were talking about this at one point is the craft elements how she does what she does and I just randomly picked a couple of places and started reading. And you immediately get what the mood of something is by the length of the sentences, by how they're put together, by it's just the pacing and the, the way she manipulates the prose is very effective in my view. Any comments about that? I um, thought the intimacy, the, there's the intimacy of the voice so you have, sometimes it's Cromwell. You're in Cromwell's head. That's his voice that we hear. And then she'll slip into an omniscient narrator who knows the past, the present, and the future, who knows everything. And frequently what I saw was that she went into that omniscient voice towards the end of a chapter that sort of was like a commentary yeah. on what's just happened. There are times when she uses the first person, the I and the we, and it brings us right into the story. That's us. Mm -hmm. we, we're part of the story. So that's also a way to, to add to the intimacy of the story that she's telling. I, I think we should, we can't get away with talking about this and these books without mentioning the he in the book. So for those maybe listeners who don't know that she very rarely uses Cromwell's actual name, unlike me as a writer, I, I will start a new paragraph with saying Richard ate his breakfast. Or, but Mantel starts it off with he eats his breakfast. The sentence before had Henry doing something. And then he says he eats his breakfast in the next paragraph. And I'm saying, but Henry's already had his breakfast. Why is he eating his breakfast again? And then you have to stop and look back and say, oh, she's meaning Cromwell. To me, Jarring your reader out of the book so you can figure out who the heck he is in this particular sentence, it drove me bananas. That's interesting. I can empathize with that. The thing is that I think as a reader of 
all three of the books, you get used to just the default he is Cromwell. So when she says he, unless she's clarifying it, unless she actually clarifies that it's someone else, it's going to be Cromwell. But that's, it's definitely a peculiarity of her style. And, and you said something that was, that also was interesting is her use of the present tense throughout, which I think even though we all know how the story is going to end, <laughs> we all know what happens to him, but the present tense somehow makes it more, yeah, immediate and maybe a little more surprising because you're not looking back at it from what has happened. And also because she's so close into his head and he doesn't see the future, obviously, at that point, even if he's got some kind of <laughs> feeling that of dread of something that's going to happen. But I also found a, there was a really interesting place for me where he, where she goes, where she uses the omniscient voice, but not at the end of a chapter. It's the scene where just, just before 5 a.m. on Monday, 13 November, the merchant Robert Packington, a member of parliament, leaves his house in the city of London to attend early mass. Thick mist blankets the streets around. Anyway, she goes into this scene, this omniscient scene from up above, and he gets shot. And then... And then it find a crowd gathers, blah, blah, blah. Before seven o'clock, he, Lord Cromwell. And she does that too. And just in certain places where- yes, uh, Because I think she was told to do it after the first two books were so confusing. No, she, yeah. she frequently in the earlier books, she would say, he, Cromwell. And yeah. that's what used to drive me crazy. Oh. And she, she does it. So here's another place where he's in bed and he's thinking and he says, he's thinking about Henry. Is a prince even human? If you add him up, does the total make a man? He is made up of shards and broken fragments of the past, of prophecies and of the dreams of his ancestral line. The tides of history break inside him. Their current threatens to carry him away. His blood is not his own, but ancient blood. He lies sleepless, Baron Cron, his mind ranging across country over the dales and rivers to where the factions in their encampments stir in their sleep and curse his name. So we go from being right inside his head to this omniscient voice that describes him mm -hmm. and what he's doing. It's really hard to do that successfully. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I often use the omniscient voice to set a scene. So you were talking, the one that you described, where we, okay, we look down on high, here's the scene. And then we go into the scene and into somebody's head. She kind of slips back and forth all the time from Cromwell to this omniscient narrator. Yeah, yeah. I found one everything. Um, where he, omniscient says, the ruffian Cromwell comes in. And I realized, ah, oh, if she'd said he, he comes in, I wouldn't have thought that he would describe himself as a ruffian. And later on the page, she says, the man Cromwell laughs. At, but you see, I, I found all of those back and forths confusing. It just, it, so I was constantly stopping and trying to assess who was doing what to whom, you know, a, a lot. So, but. Yeah, I can see that. And I think that is probably one of the things that, makes people not like these books. The fact that you have to just be so immersed into it that you get all of that without questioning it, as it were. Right. I, I think that's right. Uh, and the other thing I really did find, and that's because I'm sure you and you all have been uh, chastised by our editors who, who have crossed out lovely descriptions of something and they say, doesn't help the story. And uh, there was one one time he wrote, 
I counted them, 480 words on a bowl of plums. <laughs> right. By this time, it was about 650 pages in and the story was moving along and suddenly we get 480 words describing a bowl of plums because she can. But it it told me nothing about the whole. Yes, the writing is beautiful. If you took that paragraph out and put it up on the screen, you'd say, oh my God, that's a fantastic description. But it's indulgent, I think. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, but I do. Yes, and there's a certain aspect of she can get away with it because she's that's Hillary Mantel. Right. <laughs> you have to, that's right, yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the title, because I went all the way through this book and I, I underlined all the different times that she talks about a mirror. Oh, for 52 times there were, 52 <laughs> So you did it too. Yes. <laughs> so clearly that title was... She had that in her mind at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And she describes, she has Cromwell describe Henry as the mirror and the light. Yes, that's Uh, right. Wasn't that until the end? I'm trying to remember. I thought, I thought that's for me was when we got to the end and she said that I was like, oh, that's where the title came from. I don't think it was quite at the end, but it was certainly past the maybe two thirds part. Yes, I remember that. Um, it's, two, yeah, 200, 200, 200 words, 200 uses of the word light too. That's mm-hmm. not lighthearted or, but light. Mm. And so I was wondering the very last two chapters of the book, one is called the mirror and one is called the light. Yeah. And in those two chapters, we see no omniscient narrator at all. It's always in Cromwell's head, except for one line in where is it? I don't know. Somewhere in one of those, he actually goes, has one sentence that's omniscient. I, it's so interesting, those last chapters, because, and it makes total sense to me that she wouldn't be an omniscient at all, because what struck me is that even whatever Cromwell thought before, he's so into where he is now that this whole, everything that happened takes him by surprise a little bit. It took, it did. I obviously know what happened to Cromwell because we learned it in our history books, but I I found it a, a little so surprising that I was confused as to why it had happened that way. I saw a couple of clues, but then I didn't see anything until he was actually arrested in the courtyard and I was I was as confused as he was. It seems so minor. Yes. You know? Well, exactly. Yes, exactly. And that was one that was one complaint that I have with was her author's note at the end because there were things I wanted to know. Mm. How much of this is actually true taken from the time because we have a lot of the from that time we have a lot of that history written down. And so I wanted to know these things that they bring against him seem so minor. Is yeah. that actually what they were doing? And of course, maybe it was, as long as the king wanted it. But again, think but think about Anne Boleyn. She had these major charges, but they were based on small acts in a way. And the thing is that I think if Henry decided he wanted to someone to go away, they found a way to make it happen. Exactly. Yeah, it was based on lies. And it seems to me that the mirror in that in those final chapters, the mirror is Cromwell in the same position where he has put other men. And yes. he's seeing yes. now who he what was, it be, what it must have been like. And, and, and then and, and that so starting with Anne Boleyn's 
beheading. And the end, it's just, it, it's almost chilling because who he is there and who he has to become at the end when he's, I, th- I thought that was masterful, actually. And her effect of pulling the rug out from underneath the reader at the same time. Yeah, she definitely did that to me. And and I think it almost, it almost would have been fun, but it would have probably been cliche to have had him on the scaffold, see someone out in looking at him as Thomas was looking at, and the omniscience saying he was wondering what he was going to have for breakfast. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But you can feel that in a way. Terrible, Anne. I know, really. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. And I think the light, I think the light is his final recognition and acceptance of who he is. And she ends it with that verse. I am as I am and so will be at the end, which again is that whole recognition. This is who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. And it's over. As obviously you have been invested in, in Thomas Cromwell far longer than I was. So when it got to that last scene and it got to him suddenly realizing he was facing his own uh, demise, how sympathetic were you? I was very sympathetic because I felt like I was in his head. Mm -hmm. And he talks about what hell was going to be. It was the anticipation of the pain. It was the anticipation of what was going to happen, that things were going, you were going to be accused of things that you didn't even know you'd done wrong. And of course, that's exactly what he did to other people. But there's still that you're in his head. You, You know what's going to happen to him. And I guess that question, how is she going to handle that was in my mind from the first sentence. And so it was, it was really fascinating to me to look at what she eventually did. Yeah, I think it's really hard to do that when you're writing in the first person. But also, yes, but, but I, she's not, she wasn't writing in the first person. No, really. not the first person. Oh, not on the first person. I'm sorry. Person. Close third. We're in his head, right? Close in third. his point of view. Sorry about that. But the thing is that even though I was, I felt that empathy for him, it wasn't an ending that was even close to making me cry. Like, unlike you would with another kind of character. But I think that was maybe intentional because we do find out who he really was. And he was incredibly smart, incredibly intuitive. He could, he knew he could see how to manipulate and move. And he got his just desserts in the end. However, terrible they were. I think so too. No, it's really Henry that comes across as horrible to me. Just oh, oh yes. Horrible. Even worse. Oh, oh yes. I quite agree with you. Even worse. And he, he was even worse. Yeah. And actually I, I did want to just touch a little bit on talking about Henry <sighs> on her character, her characterization. That was another problem that I had with the book. And uh, I think some of it was the fact that I was reading it on Kindle because I couldn't get a copy and I wasn't going to spend $27. Sorry, guys. But I got it on Kindle and I thought I'll read it quickly. Could not get back to the dramatis personae, the four pages of which there are. And so all of the minor characters, other than Henry and other, and obviously Thomas, And my favorite was the French servant, Christophe, who came across to me very clearly. The rest of them, 
they all ran together for me. I never got a sense of character from uh, Gregory, from Rafe and Gregory were interchangeable for me, and then Risley and who was the other guy? Risley, and there was another uh, uh, counselor. Richard something, yeah. Yeah, uh, Richard oh, Rich. Richard Rich. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he was a piece of work too. Mm-hmm. But I never really, I could never see them in my mind's eye. And that's something that I'm a very visual reader and I guess cinematic reader, and I need to distinguish these people, whether they've got a glass eye or that's um, a bit simple. But I, these characters, she didn't give me any depth for me. And so I didn't care about any of them. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Did well, you love Risley? I listened to all three books. Uh-huh. I listened to the audiobook, And then I read this one after I'd listened to the whole book. And then I read it. And and so I got a feel for them, especially the, the French guy and Holbein. And the reader for this book was absolutely fantastic, really good. But they give Henry this sort of high-pitched, whiny voice, mm. which I loved. Because it really made him, you know, Cromwell's duty was basically to console and to calm and make him feel like he's okay when everything's going okay. You're the mirror and the light, my Lord, of all princes, all the world over. And it really did, having Henry have that sort of tiny high voice really made you hate him even more. (laughs) I don't remember. Was that just in the third one? Because I listened to the first one. And I don't remember that, but that was so long ago. <laughs> I know the first one, uh, I think there was more than one narrator. There may have been more than one narrator. I can't remember, but it was definitely a different narrator this time. And I really wondered who made the decision to have to have Henry come across as high-pitched and whiny. Makes you wonder what they would do to present-day leaders in that situation. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> oh, yes. Of which, Eventually, yeah. the novels come to be written of them. Just going back to what Anne was saying about the secondary characters, which I found really interesting, I had very clear images of some of them, but not all of them. And I think that for some reason that didn't bother me. It's like they were they were acting more symbolically to me in some way. I'm not sure how to explain that. But if I really try and make a picture of especially the, the ones who weren't in his household, Rafe, I know, Gregory and Christoph and all those people, they're very clear to me. But the ones outside of that, they're almost interchangeable. That's, that was yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think that. I, I really got a strong sense of Thomas Wyatt. I got a strong sense of Holbein, for sure. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm talking yeah, about well, the... I did too for Holbein. Richard but, Rich and he, he, was not, he, he was not a politician. He was... that He took you out of this political world, and and, uh, and I appreciated that. I like that. Um, oh, and I loved Chapuis, too. Yeah, I Chapuis, he was a great. Was <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you can imagine listening to it, we get all the different dialects. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Chapuis has a very... Um, Cremwell. Yeah, Cremwell. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway... I um, wanted to ask you about the ghosts. This book is full of ghosts. Yes, I know. Yeah, especially when he's in the tower at the end. Yes, I I see what you're saying, like Thomas More and all that. Yes. Yes. Right, right. And it was so subtle. It was just like he looks over in the corner and Thomas More gets up and walks away. Whoa. The only one who actually talks to him is Woolsey. 
Yeah, yeah. So yes, that's right. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was seamless and perfectly normal. Personally, yes. personally yeah. I, I, I talked to ghosts too. Me, what that did was give him this sense of mortality too. And this yes, whole sort right. of leading up to his own death. It was part of that, maybe his own, maybe a premonition of what was to come, seeing these ghosts. There's a scene very much at, there's a line very much at the end. On the last night of his life, he thinks about your dead. They are visible and they shine. Their flesh is honeycombed with light. He's just surrounded by the ghosts that he created. He created most of those ghosts. Yeah, I, 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 there's a line I really loved, which was he thought, this was interesting, it was a thought from Cromwell, but he doesn't say it to Rafe. He's talking to Rafe and he says, you can persuade the quick to think again, but you cannot remake your reputation with the dead. Yeah. And that's a throwback to Wolseley and obviously Anne Boleyn, yes. Yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting craft choice she made too, where she he would be talking to someone and be in quotes and it yeah. would continue the conversation, but he wasn't saying it out loud. It was in his med. And I think one of the most horrifying scenes in the book to me, which I did think she, she is a brilliant writer. Please don't get me wrong. I just think she's a little self-conscious, that's all. But great scene of, when, of Surrey's mistake and the whole how they cut off a hand and that... I was right in that scene. I mm. thought it was brilliant that the violence of it, it that more than even the beheading, I'm, I guess I'm used to beheading, but there's something, there was something really visceral about having your hand cut off. And I was thinking all the things I couldn't do if I didn't have a hand that she. Right. Yeah. Any more observations anybody wants to make before we end our, I think really interesting discussion. No, I'm, I'm I, I, the only thing I'd like to to say other than thank you very much for including me in this discussion considering I was the uh, sort of naysayer of the group <laughs> I just wanted to make a, a comment about Mantel herself and that I found something I thought was very interesting asked whether she would change facts to suit her narrative which the three of us all go through we all wonder if we should do this I was happy to hear her say I would never do that I aim to make the fiction flexible so it bends itself around the facts as we have them. Otherwise, I don't see the point. (laughs) Nobody seems to understand that. Nobody seems to share my approach to historical fiction. I suppose if I have a maxim, it is that there isn't any necessary conflict between good history and good drama, (laughs) which I totally agree. But I have to say, I did resent the fact that she thought nobody else does that. <laughs> it's she true. obviously hasn't read everybody. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just found that. I, and that I, is, that's actually one of the reasons why I have mostly stayed away from biographical historical fiction, because that is a huge challenge to arrange the fiction around the events. And you don't want to change things. You don't want different outcomes or whatever. But you do, what she does is she does invent, invent some characters who are very useful. And and in particular, Christophe was an invention. So, sure, we all do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I, I'm a chicken. I sometimes will just instead invent a, a drama around the events that happened that, that where, not, where the main player isn't my main ca- character, as it oh, were. I see, I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, and, but I also think that that's why she doesn't have a very big author note, because I think she thinks we all know this about her. <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I think it, it does do a reader, the reader a disservice who wants to know more or not everything in the book was cut and dried and real. Mm-hmm. And I know Sharon K. Penman, may she rest in peace, mm. lovely lady. She, she had 12 pages worth of author's notes because she was meticulous about telling us exactly what was right and what was wrong in, in the book. That's maybe a little overkill, but I know she used to agonize over those author's notes. And I was looking forward to Hilary Mantel's too. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder if this was right or that was right. And I was surprised to see how short it was. Yeah. 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 Any thoughts about changing things. I know, you see, the thing is, Pat's history is so undocumented, right? In that, that it's a whole different thing. And I have huge admiration for the story that you've been able to, and the characters you've been able to create around this very limited factual history. But we are going to talk another time about the steel and the silk, or sorry, it's the steel beneath Beneath the silk. silk. I'm going to get that right at some point. I'm terrible because especially when I'm reading books on Kindle, where you're not, you don't see the title every time you pick it up. Mm-hmm. I, I forget. I sometimes, if I didn't know it was by you, I would have to go and check <laughs> because I forget the authors too. That's, which is really irritating, but yes, it is the steel beneath the Silk, which is the third volume of her trilogy about Emma of Normandy. The first one was Shadow on the Crown. Second one was The Price of Blood, right? Yes. And the third one now is The Steel Beneath the Silk. And I won't even try to say the titles of all of your books, Anne. Maybe you would do that for us. In order, they are A Rose for the Crown, Daughter of York, The King's Grace, Queen by Right, Royal Mistress, and This Son of York. And, And this Son of York is the closest one to having a protagonist that most people think was a bad man, as Mantell's Thomas Cromwell was. And it's a matter of looking at him from a different point of view. And um, so that's the only one I have as a male protagonist. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for, for doing this. It was really interesting to me. I am I am not an English history person at all, as I said. It's good to get your perspectives on this and, and just honored to have both of you fabulous writers on my podcast. It's been thank fun. Thank you so much. for. Yes, it was wonderful. And if I could just put in for people reading, sorry, listening, I would just like to say if they want to see sort of film versions of this period that includes Henry and Thomas Cromwell, certainly the Wolf Hall TV series that the BBC did is very well worth seeing. And on Saturday, I sat down and I found A Man for All Seasons, which is a a wonderful look at Henry and Sir Thomas More, but Leo McKern as Thomas Cromwell. Now he is my Thomas Cromwell. (laughs) Okay, that's a project. Watch all of those. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, thank you again, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much, ladies. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google, 
visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.